Welcome to Herbal Hour, the podcast for those inspired by nature. I'm your host, Dr. Bogdan, and I'm a licensed naturopath and traditional herbalist, bringing you organic discussions with experts in natural medicine, alternative therapies, and holistic mental health. Hippocrates taught us that the doctor treats, but it is nature that heals. So take a deep breath and get comfortable. We hope you enjoy our conversations over a cup of the finest herbal tea. Because in nature, it's always Herbal Hour. Welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast. We have a special guest today, Heather Bean. She is a Master of Science in Rehabilitation Counseling and is a Functional Nutrition Health Coach. She is the founder of Heather's Healing Kitchen. Welcome to the Herbal Hour. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to start off with uh, how you got interested in nutrition. Okay. Um, like most people, I had a health crisis. Um, I had been practicing as a therapist at the time. And um, actually, since we're going to talk a little bit about story, I had a carbon monoxide leak in my house and I got very sick. And that started my healing journey where I really began to see um, how hyper-aroused I functioned, how much I was in that heightened state of stress and anxiety. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that my health crisis had to do with lack of breath. I don't think I was breathing at that point anyway, so that the universe might have given me there could have been maybe an easier mm-hmm. <laughs> lesson. It was a pretty big one, but um, I something else would have happened to to my body um, because I wasn't breathing at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, just always busy, very adrenaline junkie kind of person. You know, either like partying or mountain bike racing and running marathons, running away from a lot of things. Um, so once that happened. Um, I was really, really sick, and I had to completely rebuild. And there was no more um, partying or racing my emotions away. Mm. So uh, I really had to get down deep into um, healing my own body, and then that, in turn, uh, started my second career in nutrition. I had been interested already. Thankfully, when that happened, I already... um, was involved in more, which we talked about, complementary, which I really think it's not complementary or alternative. I was already involved in natural kinds of medicine. So thankfully through the chiropractor and shiatsu and a shaman, I was able to heal my body. And I learned a ton about my nervous system. And uh, I went back to school for functional nutrition. And it Heather's Healing Kitchen organically grew from there. Um, and I knew when I started Heather's Healing Kitchen that, uh, especially with women, it wasn't about the food. I knew it was about emotions. Mm-hmm. But that is um, running way deeper than I could have imagined. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, what is functional nutrition? How would you describe that? Um, functional nutrition is getting at the root cause. Um, there's a couple different theories that functional nutrition approaches, and that is bioindividuality, that we have to know what's going on inside someone's body before we can make any suggestions of what to bring in. We're not treating symptoms. We're looking at what is the underlying imbalance of the body creating the symptoms. 
and it's much more holistic. It, it views, it's not just looking at the body, it's looking at the nervous system, the thoughts in the mind, um, spirituality, career. It's, you know, all of the things that make a person, person's life and, you know, how they function. It's, it's the trauma, it's the past, it's, it's all of it. You know, everything that's happened from the, uh, up until the moment the person comes into your office to, uh, to feel better. Mm. A lot of the uh, clients that come to you, what are they uh, seeking? Are they seeking a kind of like a nutritional plan or what do you kind of find that people are coming to you for? Usually two avenues. Um, I do a lot with relationship with food and I can see that, I can see women being much more open to that than, and men too, actually, I, I'm starting to get some, some male clients too. Um, when I first started promoting myself, like that relationship with food, people are like, what are you talking about? Just tell me if I should do keto or paleo, or is it okay to be a vegan? You know, everyone's so uh, interested in being told what to do, having some mm -hmm. external constraints or instruction versus being more intuitive. And I was like, no, no, it's got to come from inside of you. Um, so, so, so women will come to me, they'll, they'll identify it as weight loss, and I will reframe it to relationship with food. And when they come on that track, there's a lot of somatic work. Uh, there's a lot of trauma work, um, which I actually think needs to be done before any nutrition work, because what's if a person has um, a trauma-based emotional relationship with food, whatever suggestions I'm going to make, they're not going to be able to choose. Mm -hmm. So I really, most of the time, start there. I do have clients that come in and what they've identified is, there's, it's pretty typical at this point, their stories are all similar to my story of that, um, and maybe yours too, where that Western medicine has, has failed them. They've gone mm -hmm. to doctor after doctor, prescribed medication after medication, and they're just getting sicker. So um, they're ending up in my office as, as the last place they hope mm -hmm. to be. Um, and I'll then have to sneak in relationship with food anyway mm -hmm. because that's typically a part of it. But that part, too, there's a lot of... Um, holding self-compassion and hope for people because by the time they have exhausted that Western medicine journey of just getting sicker and sicker, they're pretty hopeless. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, similar to how you started with us today, I, I listen to their story. Uh, the first time I meet with someone, I just let them tell me their story. I, I, I think they need to get it out. And, and I, I find my role is to be is to hold space for that pain and, and provide some hope and then move forward from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's incredibly important. You know, many people, they they go through the conventional system and uh, they barely make it out. And one of the main issues, of course, uh, the system is all too ready to give people some quick fix as if uh, health was uh possible just suddenly right people mm -hmm. don't get usually sick overnight it happens over you know years um, long periods of time their uh, way of viewing the world of course how they eat their nutrition um, moving around having uh, a connection to some higher purpose I find is also really really important I think humans um, 
we we seek meaning in life and if we don't have that meaning whatever that is it could be you know raising a family it could be a particular form of career but if we don't have that meaning something always feels like it's uh like it's lacking and i think that's why it's it's really important to look into people's uh stories and our own story because i think all the kind of clues and hints to you know how we can heal are in that story um I think so too. And, um, you know, when my, um, journey towards wellness, I realized because, uh, and I do this a lot with clients of are, are the first tool I usually start with is, uh, some kind of somatic practice to regulate the nervous system first thing in the morning. And a lot of shifting of that inner dialogue that I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm sick, mm-hmm. I'm sick. I'm going to be sick forever because I was there and it is so difficult to be, engaged in life if the first thought you have every day and the first thing you feel every every morning is pain. And uh, I was there. And so I really work at supporting my clients of, of shifting out of there, of, of shifting from pain to intense sensation and from sick to healing, you know, really working on that mindset and the messages being sent to, mm. to the body because um, it's exhausting and, and you become very hopeless you know, going in. And that model really doesn't provide Mm -hmm. any hope. I mean, when I had that carbon monoxide accident, the, um, the only, I remember the only doctor that was really helpful was my neurologist who supported me going to the chiropractor. But the only, you know, um, intervention really was pain meds because Mm -hmm. I had so much nerve pain. But then thankfully I got to my very first chiropractor. I'm a huge, huge supportive chiropractic i have like a chiropractic in every port mm-hmm. <laughs> if i go traveling somewhere i like have because i know if i if i'm feeling any kind of fatigue that i just need a little jolt to my mm-hmm. nervous system because um, i do have some permanent damage but they suggested painkillers so if i hadn't been in that world of more natural medicine prior then that's would have that would have been what i was offered painkillers mm-hmm. And that's not what I did. And my first chiropractor, um, thankfully, was a friend of mine from high school and college who ran into a friend of mine. And it's like, I haven't seen Heather. Where has she been? And she said, oh, my God, she had a carbon monoxide accident. And he's like, tell her to come see me. And uh, he, I, he was like every um, – the way he explained it to me, um, if there's any chiropractors out there, this is my laywoman's explanation, that, like, come in every day. We're going to just keep getting your nerves to grow and grow and grow. And so for a while, I got adjusted every day. And so the chiropractic healed my nervous system. And Western medicine offer, offered me painkillers. Mm. Yeah, that's the, um, that's the big issue. And also, it creates problems later on, right? Because let's say the, the pain medication does help for a while. For any kind of chronic pain, it's not a long-term solution. Mm-hmm. And then one needs to, in the end, find another way anyway. Yeah. Well, why go through that whole uh, terrible process of, of being on pain, medica- pain medication and then being off of it and, and things like that? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's typically a dead end, the solutions that they're, they're offering. And it's unfortunate. I hope that that, and I think it is, I think there is some, some shifting of where, where the people that, people start with instead of end with, you know, but I hope so. 
Do you, uh, do you think it's possible that the, I guess what we would call the conventional medical system can become more integrative? Or is there just too much, uh, you know, like resistance and uh, profit motive, pharmaceutical companies, that kind of thing that are making it unlikely? Well, my trauma-based experience wants to say completely unlikely. Um, but I hope that there's maybe some middle ground, but I don't really see um, when it's so money-driven. You know, I, I, when you, I very rarely go to a Western medicine doctor, but I, I recently had to, and I, I really was like, I felt like an alien. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I've been abducted, and I'm on this planet that I just don't understand what's happening. And there, I felt like there was like a thousand people working there. Mm -hmm. And I thought like the economy will, how are we going to shift this without the economy collapsing? And, and that will always be chosen first. So mm -hmm. I would like to be more optimistic <laughs> if mm -hmm. you, if you have anything to share that would uh, help me. But I, I just think there's too much money involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's so large too, right? Uh, like you were saying, like the thousand people working there. I think even if you had, you know, like a natural health clinic that had a thousand people working there, and there was all these kind of systems in place, it removes a, uh, the kind of you know personalized, individualized approach that you actually really need to help mm -hmm. someone with True. healing. So once it becomes very large and systematized, you run into a lot of issues, like with basically any large system or institution. True, true, yeah, you, you lose that, that person to person. Yeah, there's no time to, to provide hope mm -hmm. if you've got quotas and people to pay. And so I, um, I, it's unfortunate, but the, the piece of it I feel optimistic is just that this system is failing people miserably. Mm -hmm. So, um, I've noticed an increase in clients um, because people want to feel better and they are not mm -hmm. getting that kind of support. And mm -hmm. so I think if, and I also think when I first started, the first question people would, which is about six years ago, people, the first question people would often ask is, do you take insurance? Nobody asks me that now. Mm -hmm. Nobody. They know that they have to pay out of pocket to feel better. They're mm -hmm. fully, I feel like the majority is fully aware of that. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that barrier, we're kind of over that barrier for That's people because I feel like people are very, understandably so. I mean, they, they keep certain jobs that they don't like <laughs> to have this insurance that does not pay to help their health. Um, mm -hmm. So I see that shift where people are kind of knowing all they're going to do is prescribe medication, and I don't want that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more like uh, it's like sick care. It's it is not sick care. really yeah. um, healthcare, and it's unfortunate. And it's interesting, and this is a point I bring up quite often: is if you look throughout history, it, the situation has kind of always been the same. There's been a kind of like a, like a mainstream medicine that existed during the time, and depending on what period of history you look into, at one point they were just um, you know bleeding everybody for everything. Uh, other times they were using mercury and all sorts of poisonous metals, and that was like the conventional care during the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they derided all of what at that time even might have been called like alternative 
practitioners like folk healers, herbalists, oh, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Witches. <laughs> it's kind of the same story so. that's been repeating itself You're right. yeah, pretty yeah. much. You know, it has it wears like a different costume, but I don't think it's a different situation. Right. It's like the the systematized, conventional, and sometimes even barbaric uh, medical practices. And then there's the more like holistic, personalized, individualized approaches. And they've kind of always been kind of coexisting slash antagonizing each other for for a long time. But I do think that even within the conventional model, there is a lot more of a movement towards, you know, at least like understanding how supplements and, and things like that work and how herbs work. So yes. there's just so much pressure from the public. And I don't even really think it's necessarily the fault of any like individual practitioners. I think a lot of a lot of uh, medical doctors they they feel stuck within the system that they have to work under. It, yes, they, they yeah. wish yeah. that they could recommend these things, but then they're you know they might not have enough time, or they work in a hospital, or they don't really have as much freedom because they have to follow you know what's their um, uh, standard of care what basically what they're expected to do and so it becomes very limiting to where it's become kind of almost like um some kind of behemoth that like even the people who practice under that system don't really necessarily agree with it you know yeah that's an uh I, yes i agree with that i recently um i'll give a shout out to any of the nurses i think the nurses are going to save us mm-hmm. i have had uh post-covid five clients that are nurses all working to change the system within. I think they are sick of the hours and how that affects their health. Mm -hmm. I think they're sick of the stressful conditions they're working under. Uh, I think they're heartbroken about the, the lack of uh, compassionate care that their schedules allow them to give. And that's why they signed on to be a nurse. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm hopeful that the nurses will, uh, from the inside, make something happen. I think so. The, my my money's on the nurses. I, I, my money's definitely on the nurses okay. as well. <laughs> they, uh, in general, tend to be more holistic minded. I've noticed yes. within the conventional. Yes, uh, and they uh, the nurses that I've seen as clients are either, they're going to try to change it or quit because mm-hmm. they can't they can't function like that anymore and take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. I have a, a recent client that's a nurse. We do a lot of somatic practice because she has such. Uh, trauma um, from working in the emergency room during COVID that she's going to see if she can regulate her nervous system and and find her way to ground it and centered again, uh, or she's going to quit. I think they're not willing uh, to work under those conditions anymore. Mm -hmm. So that brings up uh, a good and probably useful uh, question to anyone listening in the audience is what are some of the ways to get more grounded, to kind of calm down that uh, sympathetic response. What are some practices that you recommend that you personally do? I do. um, I'm also certified in um, this befriending your body technique. And it is, um, I trained under uh, the psychotherapist, Dr. Ann Biasetti. She has a book, Befriending Your Body, and her whole practice is um, an embodied life. And so I run a group, and then I use these tools in my individual practices, and they're all about embodiment techniques, uh, a grounding breath, um, ways to um, quiet the mind and live in the body, um, some things like um, 
containment is one of my favorite ones. So you're almost like a, I'm, remi- I'm rewind, reminded of the, the willow of where you're almost, the way you're moving and living in your body is almost mimicking how you want to function in life. Like your, your feet are, are grounded and, and you, f- you feel the energy of the earth coming through your feet and all the way up your spine and you can sway with the stress of things, but you're flexible and mm-hmm. flowing and you're strong in your center. So a lot of the practices are kind of like yoga, like, like body is mountain mm-hmm. is one. Um, I find myself doing this containment one a lot too. That's for emotional regulation where you um, bring to mind like a current struggle and then hold on to it really tight and then uh, allow it to, to let go of it and, and then contain it. And that uh, we learn to almost, uh, we regulate our nervous system and then we can regulate our emotions. So mm-hmm. a lot of the practices are kind of teaching that and how that feels versus what we think about that. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, incredibly important. There's something um, uh, Tony Robbins said uh, which is whenever you're unsure or uncertain of what to do next or you're, you have a lot of kind of like self-defeating thoughts or doubts or things like that, to not, uh, to not try to defeat those with your own mind and with your own thoughts, but change your mind state to do some kind of practice to get yourself back in alignment. And then, and then things kind of flow naturally because I think there's a... There's a tendency of the mind to want, when you have like, let's say like a negative thought come up or something like that, to try to counter it within your own mind. But then you get into this kind of uh, loop that's very hard to get out of. Mm -hmm. When sometimes just uh, doing some mindfulness practice, going for a walk, clearing your mind, and then everything kind of comes back into focus. And I think we, in general, we lack that in our culture. It's kind of almost even seen as oh, it's not productive to just sit and breathe and, and, and focus your awareness on your breath or go for a walk or things like that. Um, but it's not healthy and it's not sustainable to be constantly go, go, go in sympathetic mode. Yep. Um, and then... That's a, the beginning teachings of befriending your body um, is uh, some psychoeducation about how we became so disembodied. And some history on that of Descartes and I think therefore mm-hmm. I am and how we became a society that thinks we are our mind. Yeah, the mind and uh, body split. Yeah, yeah. Which the, is the, the biggest illusion. Yeah, exists. and I think it's what fuels our binary thinking and our black and white and how we have become so divisive that things are either this way or that when that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. Everything's gray. So... Um, there's a lot of teaching in befriending your body about that, uh, which I think softens the process for women. That that particular program is um, for women with disordered eating or eating disorders, which, to be honest, with the diet culture, uh, I don't know any woman that doesn't have some kind of disordered eating at some point in their life because uh, there's a lot of trauma associated with food and our bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, with objectification mm-hmm. and the diet culture. So it's uh, it's painful. It's a painful, difficult topic for women. Um, and then when they come at it from diet and restricting and criticism and shame and judgment, all of this stuff is dysregulating. Mm-hmm. And so that's how you get 
stuck in that that loop. We that's what we talk a lot about of rewiring. We're rewiring the brain through the body. So it's uh that's really the basis of of the emotional piece of my work, which mm. uh, I think has to come first. Mm. How. Uh do you think that someone can find their way out of something like that, like disordered eating? Like, what's your what's your approach? Uh, kind of big insights. Um, there's a lot of food trauma and story. Um, I think before we went on, um, you started taping us. We were, I was talking about I had a new client last night, and I realized I almost need a separate intake for uh, family of origin health history that. I was asking this woman some questions and there was, um, you know, say I asked her about her dad and yes, there's maybe history of diabetes and heart disease. But then when I asked, um, you know, how did he ever say anything that made you feel bad about your body or ashamed about your body? And I asked about the, um, the environment of food, you know, eating, cause you, it, there's so much trauma involved in it. Even if you think there's nothing about satiation or hunger when we're young, we we eat at, or even in our current society, we eat at lunch hour, dinner time. But it has nothing to do with whether we're hungry. We're always rushed. Um, when I was a kid, it would be like finish that on your plate. There's mm -hmm. there's children in other countries starving. Mm -hmm. Now you feel like a jerk that so you mm -hmm. you know you didn't eat all of that, but you weren't hungry. You didn't like the taste of it. I mean, we're not really taught about food. It's it's reward and punishment. You know, and um, women go through where if um, when their bodies are changing, they're, they see their mothers on diets, they're getting weighed, they're getting brought to the, d the doctor saying she's getting chubby. I mean, it's like it's intense, intense mm -hmm. trauma. It sounds uh, very destructive. Really destructive. And so when we really get into to the trauma and the story about food, it's pretty intense, but we have to heal that. And I, I really never find I find that most clients are like, oh, my God, that makes so much sense sense of like I couldn't control my family of origin and so this was the only thing I could control um, another um, theme I see very often with women um, who are in larger bodies and struggle with um, binge eating disorders and things like that they come from families of origin where they have no voice mm. and so I think there's a very deep emotional connection between um, not not being seen and heard you know, and, uh, you know, that's when you are protecting, you're protecting your physical body from emotional pain in a larger body in our society that frowns upon that. And you're literally like not, not allowing yourself to, to speak when you want to speak. Mm -hmm. And so I find a big connection with that too. So I'd focus a lot on that, at making sure my clients are seen and heard and uh, getting into to the trauma. Mm -hmm. that they experienced around food. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's like a, a chain of trauma that gets yeah. passed on from generation to generation to generation. It's like that saying that uh, hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Or, uh, shamed people shame people. And I think there's uh, something very helpful in that understanding because when we can see that those people who have, may have harmed us, that they themselves were harmed, and then you have this kind of uh, energy of compassion that comes up instead. It allows the, 
not condoning the behavior, of course, or making it right, but allowing one to kind of uh, forgive it and let go so that it, it's not something that weighs on one. And I think um, it's a little bit, in some sense, even counterintuitive because how can having compassion towards people who may have uh, traumatized you help you at all? But it it seems to be one of the at least one of the first uh, steps because it allows that that weight to be lifted off and uh, to move beyond and really break that break that chain right there. And that's that's the hardest thing. It is hard. Yeah, it's hard work. That's a big part of the program, the befriending your body that I do. That's uh, the, the basis of it is self-compassion. So we're really shifting this critical, shameful, judgmental voice and story to self-compassion. Mm-hmm. So how do we do that? How do we shift more towards self-compassion? Because I know there's our culture and what we're being told through the media and movies, other people, there's a lot of uh, a lot of shame, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty, fear, all these things. How, how do we uh, change into more of a self-compassionate outlook, would you say? I would say we have to do it through the body. It's not done through the mind. We have to, uh, we have to feel what it feels like to have compassion versus anger and criticism and judgment. And if you we're such a society focused, uh, even at mental health too, of like changing a behavior, changing this behavior, changing this behavior. But unless we feel safe enough to change our behavior, our brains and nervous systems are not going to allow us to. Mm-hmm. So I teach that, which I think when some people know the why behind it, they're more willing to give it a try. And, um, so we teach about how the, you know, because a lot of clients will be like, why aren't we doing this? <laughs> you know, why aren't we talking about food? But the limbic system, when we feel, uh, when we're in fight or flight, gets flooded. And what's stored in there is our body image, our satiation cues, our hunger cues. So if we want to change behavior in relation to food, we have to regulate the nervous system, feel safe, so that we can get, so we can and that has to come first. And that's mm-hmm. where you get in that, um, you know, what they call self-sabotage. Um, I like Mestin Kip uh, calls it self-protection. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that? He, uh, um, he, I, I like this, this um, premise. He says, that, you know, why would we do that to ourselves? Why would we consciously sabotage our hard work? That it's really a self-protection, that the nervous system and the brain is keeping us in the familiar, even though... That familiar is not mm-hmm. a supportive, healthy place for us. That we have to go a little deeper and be like, what am I protecting myself from? And then typically it's, you know, we get down to the, the nitty-gritty of like, do I feel worthy? You know, do I do I feel, am I afraid of success? Am I, am I, am I afraid of joy? Do I feel I'm worthy of real joy and real love? And like, it's so weird to, that it's hard to invite these things mm-hmm. in, but... It is. Like if you, I remember when I started doing this work myself too, I was like, I'm going to try to invite some self-love in, you know? And I was like, I can't do it. I had to like back it up. Just, I I had to go from like understanding to forgiveness, to kindness, to self-love. It's hard to like really allow the emotion of self-love in. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, 
It's it's unfamiliar. It it's feels so, unsafe. So, uh, we're taught that it's conditional. Like you're not worthy yeah. of love unless. True. You're not worthy of love unless, unless you do mm-hmm. this, unless you don't do that. So we're kind of conditioned from a very young age to feel like it has to come from somewhere else or something that we do or anything like that. But it doesn't really work like that. And it's, it's really sad, actually, because um, it, it can only really that self-love can only come from our own true selves, our own true heart. Mm-hmm. But there's so much mind and so much, you know, thoughts and ideas and beliefs that they, it crowds out that, that voice that sees, like, who you really are, that you can yeah. actually love yourself as you are, like, especially for the faults, especially. Yes, there's a lot of that in the work I do. There's, I think, right off the top of my head, there's this meditation I love to do that's like, you know, it, this is my humanness. You know, we, we've really have to like rewire and unlearn yeah. so many things. Like we, we get mad at ourselves when we made, make a mistake. One of my favorite lines in a meditation is, uh, I forgive myself for not knowing what I didn't know <laughs> when I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Like what am I beating myself up over for mm-hmm. like doing it this way when I didn't know better then? Like mm-hmm. now I know better, so I'm going to do it differently. Mm-hmm. You know, we really do not have a lot of space for, for humanness. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that it's even part part of the journey. Like people get the client I just came from, we were talking about the muck and she views being stuck as a failure. And I was and I'm like, no, that's the the muck is just the next level of the spiral. What what do we need to learn this time? This is a different muck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everyone has muck. It's no failure, it's part of it. It's part of the whole experience. Mm-hmm. It's how we learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, sometimes we have to repeat the same lessons. It seems many times, but th- they're always they're always different. There's a different l- level of understanding. Yeah, it heals something different each time. It's mm-hmm. not the same lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, I I um I think when clients start to know that they ease up on themselves a little bit, then mm-hmm. then it frees them up of that feeling like they're self-sabotaging when you're like, no, this is, we're in the next level of spiral. Let's, let's take on what Mm. we're going to learn this time. Mm. Do you find that, um, on that topic of uh, self-sabotage and that idea that it's a protective mechanism, do you think that self-sabotage can ever be a kind of good thing? Like almost like the spirit is like rebelling against some way of life or some way of thinking or feeling and consciously they don't want to accept it. It could be. Yeah. I, um, I think, uh, we talked about this earlier too. I mean, I, I, I think at this point for me, when I am in a pattern like that, I kind of know that I'm supposed to be in this pattern because the lesson I'm going to learn is what like my next 10 clients are going to need. So I, you know, but we've done a lot of work to get to that level of trusting the universe and purpose and all that stuff. So I do, I do think it is, it does have a purpose. It's, it's a lesson that we need to learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just having that love and compassion, I think. That makes all the difference that, in the world. It really does. It's that, because if you think about it, especially when it comes to food, the, everything we are taught about food, you know, this restricting and being on a diet and, um, Everything in the mind, what I think I'm supposed to eat, all mm-hmm. of this is dysregulating. Mm-hmm. The scale, the critical self-talk, all dysregulating. So mm-hmm. it's no wonder that we get stuck 
in in that extreme cycle mm-hmm. of where we restrict, 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 and we binge. You know, we're not we're, we're we're coming at it from a cognitive place, and I really work to teach clients to come at it from a physiological place, not fat and thin, good and bad, but mm-hmm. how does my body feel and function? Mm-hmm. And only and only you will know that. You know, they, the clients have to figure that out. And it, the change is so much more profound and easy. You know, if I have them uh, keep a food mood poop journal, that's one of the tools we use, I'll have them come in and be like, you know what, I can't eat dairy. You know, they'll tell me why, because it gave them a stomach ache or they couldn't focus or mm-hmm. they had diarrhea. Whereas if I had said, um, I think we should uh, really look at pulling out dairy, the response would be resistance, mm-hmm. like, what? I eat cheese every day. There's right. no way I'm not having dairy. Not yeah. Those kind of things. But, but when they see for themselves in their the body, truth, then yeah. it kind of falls away. Yeah. I think that's kind of a, a, a big secret for healing or habit changes is uh, finding some way to either show yourself or another person what the true benefit of that like way of life or that change is. But to really see it. And once it's seen, then it, it isn't as much of a, a struggle. Um, because in general, most people, they, they know what the right thing to do is. So the question is, well, why don't they do that? Yeah. My, my whole practice is focused on the why, really. And I, I try to balance it out more with the nutrition. And I, I keep being pulled <laughs> to, to really dive deeper and deeper into mm. this relationship. Yeah, it's kind of this... As I've noticed uh, with with nutrition in specific that when your your mind state and your your view of life is healed or it's in a more balanced place, then you you eat healthier. It's almost like um, there's almost like two different kinds of energies. There's one that's kind of like the self destructive, like apathetic one, which just eats anything and particularly if it's bad for you then even more of that it's almost this kind of this uh, perpetuating thing um but then when you are feeling more fulfilled happier about life you feel like things are good you actually want to eat things that make you feel more good yeah yeah it's this very strange thing um well you want to uh i talk a lot with clients about, I mean, if you consider food is the main way we nourish ourselves mm-hmm. and, and I'm back to that underlying like worth, like that you, if you choose to, if you choose to nourish yourself in an extreme perfectionistic, restrictive, bingy, angry, I mean, we don't want to nourish ourselves like this. So mm-hmm. I feel like it kind of does all go once we learn that we are worthy and capable of self-soothing and regulating our emotions, and we want to nourish ourselves well with self-care, then the food comes along with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if one, quote-unquote, makes a mistake or eats something that they shouldn't, that it's not the end of the world. I mean, the, the body is incredibly adaptable. I mean, people have lived for decades just eating potatoes. It's not the healthiest way of living, but we always we have a lot more resilience, I think, than... Um, than we're aware of. And it, it comes into that kind of emotional and psychological piece where yes. someone eats the quote-unquote wrong thing and now they feel guilt and shame. And so, you know, to hell with everything. And now I'm just going to eat burgers four meals a day and that's it. 
And, and is in that moment where maybe they eat something that's out of the range of what makes them feel strong and healthy, is it the shame that's giving them nausea and diarrhea or the food itself? I mean... It's almost impossible to, to differentiate it out. Yeah. So, I mean, we... There's such a huge psychological piece. It really, it, it's, again, like I knew that going in and I knew that my master's degree in, in counseling was going to be helpful, but I didn't know it was going to be this. It was going to be everything. It's probably the main thing. It seems to say. be. I'm thinking of another, one of my first clients. This is what I was like, whoa, this is, this is intense work. I had a client with a, uh, a lot of autoimmune issues, a lot of inflammation. And of course, I want to get started on getting rid of some processed foods and white flour and things from her from her um, diet. And uh, she, she could not not have cereal or a bagel or pastries for breakfast. And so I we explored why that was something she would was, you know, not able to let go of. And it turned out it was emotional. Um, she, her father was an abusive alcoholic, physically abusive to the wife, her mom, and and her siblings. And the only time they had a peaceful meal together was breakfast. Mm. And this was the breakfast they had. So for her, this food story was peace. Like this food meant the only peaceful time she experienced with her family. And I was like, holy moly. <laughs> that was like... So, you know, then we, I backed it up then, you know, that this is, you know, I learned from, from her as we do, we learned from our clients so much. I was like, whoa, I've got to weigh back it up before I start making suggestions. How can I, I don't want to take away her peace. Like I know the bagels creating inflammation in her body, but I have to help her find other tools of creating peace in her life first. That's mm-hmm. mm. a, that's a really good point. I think that that ties into that food isn't just for sustenance. It's, it's not. much more. I mean, it's uh, cultural, it's social, it's mood regulating, um, especially a lot of the Franken foods that are, you know, available yeah. on shelves. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tons of sugar, tons of all these things that they make you feel good for a, a little bit of time, but in the long run, they make you feel much, much worse. And it's almost like food has become almost like a drug. Yeah, take. it is. It is. And it's uh, it's disappointing that, you know, our government doesn't do a better job at regulating that. I mean, there's just stuff that's not food. Yeah. That's, you know, I, I have I have some younger clients and uh, it's funny, they'll be the ones that change the family. You know, I'm like, oh, here comes so and so's dad probably going to complain that she has said if it doesn't if the color doesn't exist in nature then we shouldn't have it in our house Mm -hmm. (laughs) like teaching the kids like the gatorade colors i'm like is it does this color exist in nature (laughs) it's just crazy turquoise and neon green and oh my gosh it's just crazy yeah it is yeah it's uh it's uh, it's unfortunate it is very very unfortunate and especially if um someone has never really you know, ventured into the natural health sphere or gotten interested in nutrition. Um, there's a, a lot of people who just, they go to the 
a convenience store and they just buy whatever's there or maybe they're they have a tough economic situation so they can't really think about yeah yeah getting like organic fresh vegetables and things like that so they just get you know like candy and, and things like that and um it's just really terrible i mean in a lot of cases it would be better just to fast i think than to eat many of those foods it would, except that if we're talking food scarcity, then we're talking people that have to have the energy right. to work three jobs. And mm-hmm. so they're going to do that on yeah. sugar, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, the oh, with I'm thinking of that um, 10-year-old client that I, um, I, I'm willing to really do anything <laughs> to make changes for people. So I did a family session in the house, and I made a whole, like, rainbow chart with the kids so that they could... Uh, every day pick a color of what kind of food they wanted to eat. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, not Jolly Ranchers, you know, blueberries, mm-hmm. green, mm-hmm. broccoli. And so I tried to come at it in this fun way. Um, and I appreciated the parents being open to that. They were like, we would love your help to try to shift this. But it's hard. I mean, it's hard for parents. It's both parents work and they have three kids. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's after a nine-hour day, do you really feel like, coming home and, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to not choose Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. So I, I really I have a lot of compassion for how hard that is. And I think it, it's integral that it's done. Mm. Yeah, it takes, um, interestingly, it takes much more effort, time, and even money to eat closer to nature and the way that nature actually makes food yeah. than it does to have ultra-processed you know, foods that are engineered to be deliciously addictive so that uh, it's very hard to break free from, from that cycle. And I know when I was younger, I ate so much junk food. It was, it was unbelievable. So it's kind of interesting that I have, you know, over the years, like, learned. So I think the good thing is at least the kids tend to be pretty, they're a lot more resilient in terms of what they can eat and still be okay. I find, too, you'd you be impressed with young people, uh, teenage girls. I do a lot of embodiment work with teenage girls and, and uh, some adolescents. And they, um, they'll get, like, a pretty cool bee in their bonnet if you tell them that this marketing is, is intentional and, and, like, manipulative. And, like, I, like, try to empower them to push back. Like, they're selling you that on purpose. And, you know, do you really want to buy it? <laughs> Mm-hmm. They, it's true. That is they, exactly they, what's happening. Yes. I mean, they don't like that. Teenage girls don't want to be manipulated or, or targeted. So I find that they that empowers them a little bit to be like, hey, why they're t- that um it's the lucky charms guy. They're they're making that look appealing. That that's filled with sugar. Mm-hmm. The, the, I can't believe these parents mm-hmm. even still talk to me <laughs> after <laughs> how much how much propaganda I'm fighting with with the kids. It's, it's actually kind of funny. A lot of those a lot of those cereals that are now like ultra sugar, just the the worst food that you could possibly eat. They started out as health foods, and they were like revolutionary during their time, like a hundred years ago. Oh gosh. That's really- um, and then they started adding all sorts of sugar and colors and into it and things like that. And now it's not a staple of a healthy diet at not all. Not at all. There was some, you mentioned gas station food, and I thought about um, a, a male client I have. And he, when he came to me, he, he wanted more balance in his life. His job took him away from um, creating healthy habits for himself. And that's where we started. He wanted to bring lunch with him on the road because and stop eating gas station food um 
And what in this disease uh, sick care model, people's um, physiological cue for something's uh, imbalanced is is way too like. I mean, he he needed the gout to mm-hmm. to make a change. So I'll work a lot with clients of trying to back that up of like, well, what were the subtle cues your body was giving you before the gout? Like, mm-hmm. you don't go from zero to gout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's something your body was pushing back you know, on some other smaller, subtle, subtler level. So mm-hmm. um, he was a funny guy, but I, I worked with him on that of like, let's not have the next, um, have you return to me when you have gout again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's try to tweak things prior to that. But in that sick, sick disease model, that's kind of where, yeah, you're not, we're not doing anything till we hit rock bottom. Yeah, which is almost too late. Which is where we, yeah, is where it's, it, we can't, for some, some things can't be turned around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's very important to teach people how to be aware of their body and just being able to feel like what kind of food feels good and what doesn't and to check in an hour or two later after they have that meal to see is that, did they really eat something that, you know, helped them or, or didn't? Um, so that, you know, you don't need the gout or the type 2 diabetes after years and years and years of eating like that, but you can just see in, in the moment what kinds of foods make you feel better and which ones don't make you feel good at all. I, I, I often have clients do grounding breath prior to, to eating to start to slow down um, and have a more mindful relationship with food, like even practice eating a meal just non-distracted, look at the color of it, smell it, chew it, chew it, chew it, you know, and I think when you hear the why behind that too, people are more willing to try like Pavlov's dog. I mean, the digestion is beginning when we think about it, you know, mm-hmm. and then you're not getting, you have to chew slowly and let the enzymes in your mouth come out. And then it, you know, the food goes down to your stomach. You need the proper stomach acid. Yeah, it's a whole I mean, it's process. Like a whole... requires the parasympathetic nervous system. Yes. Which is not on most of the time. So I, I'll have them, um, clients first come, I, I have them do a grounding breath. And it's it's hard. I'm like, try, you know, even if I see them every two weeks, I'll be like at least three meals. See if you can do three meals where you do the grounding breath, you eat without distraction, and you take it like painful. It's going to feel painful how slowly <laughs> you're going to go because we're so used to mm-hmm. going so fast. Um, and I'm like, look at the color, smell it feel the saliva. I mean, this is really how we are, our bodies are meant to eat. And then that way you can feel when you're satiated. Mm. You know, we're running around putting stuff in our mouth while we're working, you know, completely unconscious. And it's, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's not good for our digestive systems. It's not, yeah. It's not good at all. No. So before we started recording, you had mentioned that you had worked with uh, with some shamans and things of that nature. Uh, I just wanted to kind of ask you about your uh, experience with that and kind of move into the more spiritual sphere. Okay, cool. Um, I've done a lot of things um, like that, and I'm I'm open about my story. Um, I started to see a shaman before my initial health crisis for crisis for anxiety. Um, and she was also a therapist, which was cool. So I got a lot of bang for my buck there. <laughs> so um, I did a soul retrieval with her. Um, she really started to teach me about 
subtle energy and taking on people's energy, which I, as a therapist at the time, I was working with um, in this at-risk youth in-home counseling therapy. It was very intense. Um, I loved it, uh, but I didn't know at that time. You know, I'm like in my mid-20s, right out of school, excited to help these kids. And I was taking all sorts of dark energy on, so she taught me how to not do that. I did... um, I actually recently did a um, shamanic journeying, and I'm just speaking to this because of the profound healing that can be had in these um, in these different kinds of uh, modalities. I did. Um, I found myself. Uh, I have a uh, gotta give a little background. I have one of my traumas that I work on is that I uh, I have a severely disabled sister, and obviously that's more her trauma, but it was very difficult childhood with a single mom. And my sister was born with cerebral palsy, quadriplegic, nonverbal, with a feeding tube. So needless to say, my anxiety disorder started pretty pretty young in helping my mom with her care. Um, so lots of issues to, to unpack as I move through the world with that. I had the, so fast forward to this um, shamanic session. I uh, found myself in my body, but I couldn't move. And I, um, I was really, really cold. And then I saw my sister, mm. Kate, and she spoke to me. And it was her voice, like speaking words, but I've never heard her voice speak words. She makes noises, um, and uses a communication board. And, um, she kept saying to me, we are more than our bodies. We are more than our bodies. We are. Wow. And I was, I mean, like, I don't know. I've done lots of talk therapy, which is great for many things, but this, I'm, you're not getting to that level where you actually, you know, see this vision and, and mm. your sister's voice is actually in words and she's telling me this message that I needed to hear. And it was so, so profoundly healing. Um, so I have found that those modalities really um, heal on such a deep energetic level that can't be accessed through the mind. Mm-hmm. Through It's got to be accessed through the body. Um, and you can get really down to the, the deep traumas that you know, fuel a narrative you don't want to live by anymore. Mm-hmm. It's almost that can reach that precognitive state because a lot of our, you know, a lot of our problems are, uh, they're kind of like language based. Like if we didn't have uh, some, some language to talk to ourselves in our mind, AKA thinking, what kinds of problems would we, would we really have? And so when we're really, when we're young and we haven't really learned how to uh, how to speak and things, we're still having these like deep, rich experiences of life that uh, affect us for the rest of our lives. But we don't have any words to put to them. Um, and even zoom out further, there was a time when humans existed where they didn't probably even have language. Maybe we just had some different sounds that uh, that we use and things like that. And so it makes me think like, how did how did people live back then? What kinds of problems did they have? Did they just see pictures of everything that, you know, they would, instead of having like a fear of this or that, they would just see like a tiger pop up in their mind and then they would get kind of like frightened. 
Um, we, maybe we just behave like animals. We just run from the tiger, then we shake it off. Maybe they maybe there were far less them. problems, <laughs> and then we ate some grass I, uh, or smoked some. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's kind of like this thought experiment I do, like uh, where I try to think what what would life be like if I had no language at all, if I had no words, if I had no, because what would the narrative be? What would the story be? Exactly. Well, that's interesting that you're saying that after I'm speaking about my sister who's by language diagnosed nonverbal. Um, I had another, it seems that a lot of my healing um, in the most recent past has been resolving some underlying trauma with that relationship. I think probably too because my mom is going to be 80 soon and her care might could potentially fall on me or be, be my responsibility. I should should use more positive linguistics <laughs> if mm. it is going to be something I'm doing. So I think that, that that's why I'm healing a lot of that stuff, so mm. that I'm capable of doing it. Um, I did um, a restorative yoga. I think restorative yoga is, a, is another means of getting this trauma out of the body. I have a good friend, um, Dawn, who does trauma-informed yoga, and I did. She does psoas. Um and uh, I've done a lot of work with her where I've released trauma from the body. And in this particular um, restorative workshop I did this past year, um, I was at the end. I was all on my, like, yoga uh, couch at the end of the, the 20 minutes of this pose. And I remember the sun shining through the window and, I, and something with my sister came up again. And I couldn't move my body, but I but I was content and filled with joy. And then I, that the lesson I found in that was that, um, why am I projecting my own feelings onto my sister? Why do I feel sorry for her? Maybe she is happy in that body. Mm. And here I've had a lifetime of anxiety mm. about her body. Mm. And I think that was the lesson in that, uh, in that restorative of like, mm. and it almost like helped me release you know, who am I to, to judge even that she's not happy? Maybe she's happy in her body, Maybe mm. you know? So mm. I think these these practices that allow the stagnant energy to move out of the body um, are super, super important to really, 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 really heal. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You bring up a point there that we we see the the external part of it but we don't see the internal in people so we don't know we really are just a lot of times just projecting what we think maybe we would feel like if we looked like they did externally mm-hmm. but that that doesn't work like that yeah so that, that was that's a, a big insight it was a huge insight that you know i'm carrying with me you know like okay that's i'm going to shift that lens mm-hmm. <laughs> you know who are we to judge what anybody's body you know, I mean, everybody's having a different experience in mm-hmm. their in their body. Mm-hmm. And we really do need these kind of these deeper practices to reach through there, because um, even like talk therapy, it's it's language based. Mm-hmm. But a lot of our you know biggest like wounds and hurts from early life were pre pre language, so yeah. they can't really be reached through language because that part of us doesn't speak language 
And so the, there has to be another way to reach it. And I think that's where the symbolic and kind of ritual-based therapies like uh, shamanic practices and things can reach. Yeah, and there's so there's so many cool modalities to try. You know, I, I love um, restorative yoga. I, I've done NLP. I do regular psoas work with my friend. That's profound. Um, cranial sacral, myofascial, you know, that's... That's a Reiki. That's those are my doctors. Mm-hmm. You know, if I feel out of balance, I kind of like okay, where's where do I feel out of balance? Mm. If it's my energy, I go to Reiki. If it's, you know, I, that's how I I take care of myself. Mm. That's so helpful knowing that you have uh, you know that tool with you for self healing at, at any time when you have these practices and you have these things that you can you can do kind of anywhere. Yeah, and it's it's cool. I. Uh, because I walk the talk daily, uh, and I don't, and it's not easy, um, and I'm open about that. The um, my my clients totally trust my referrals. Like, I have one client who calls it. She's like, I need a Heather referral on this because she knows I don't refer to anybody I don't see, and I see lots of practitioners for these things. So, um, it helps to spread the word about how healing these things can be because mm-hmm. I'm doing them. And if mm. they trust me, they'll they'll trust who I'm sending them to. Mm. Mm. What kinds of uh, mindfulness practices do you find yourself doing on a regular basis? Um, I meditate every morning, um, like non-negotiable. That's part of, you know, I go to the bathroom, brush my teeth, and meditate. Um, I just find that I, um, I need, uh, and also, too, because I do still have some pain, in, in my nervous system. So I, I still work at that in the morning of where I kind of tune into my body, see what she needs, um, how, how does she want to move. I, I, I find it better rather than have like a to-do list the night before because sometimes my body doesn't needs something that I'm not prepared for it to need, like potentially maybe wants more rest than to get up to the yoga class or go for a walk. I trust her. So I'll just ask, what do you need today? You know, and she'll mm. usually say, let's just do a little yoga this morning, you know, or, and, you know, there's time constraints. Sometimes she's like, oh, you got to get up and get going. Or, oh, I, it's nice out and I have time for a long walk. So I really, um, I probably do a good 20 minutes meditation, tune in, see what my body needs for the day, mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I apply that to, to food too. I really... I eat very intuitively, you know, where I'm kind of like, I usually ask my body in that morning meditation um, what she wants for breakfast, you know, where sometimes it's a smoothie and sometimes it's it's eggs or sometimes it's the leftover chicken if I wake up feeling protein-y. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of very like uh, intuitive. Yeah, see what, yes. Mm-hmm. But it's taken, you know, it takes time to get to that place. You know, I've, I've learned... Um, even with clients to back it up. You can't just teach intuitive eating until you teach regulation of mm. the nervous system because if you're in that fight or flight, then that, mm. that intuitive system's not really working. Mm. There's kind of a, uh, like a core belief or principle there, I think, and that's trusting that your body knows, trusting that you know the, your he- healing response, your your natural healing response knows where to go better than you can possibly ever and kind of giving it some some leeway and room 
uh, I think that's really big because otherwise, you know, we come at it with um, certain ideas of how things should be. But there's a there's a higher wisdom functioning within us that knows better than we could ever. Sometimes we just yeah. gotta get out of the way of it. Absolutely. The um, I and there's also like there's a voice of our body has a voice too, and it's way different than the mind. In fact, it's kinder and, more, and present and more fact based. You know, it's not filled with trauma and story like the mm-hmm. mind is. So. I've learned to, and I help clients figure out the voice of the body versus the voice of the mind. For example, with pain, um, I was taught this, and then now I teach this, that it's um, pain is really a definition of the mind. And so in my morning body scan, if I feel what I now label intense sensation, I ask my body what she needs versus, you know, judge what's happening. So... Mm. Say if there's a particular, like the um, base of my neck often has like tightness and um, I'll kind of tune in and be like, do you want some heat or do you need some cool? You need need to be stretched out. So really tweaking the way we speak to our bodies of not what's wrong with you, uh, what am I going to make you do, but to what do you need? Mm -hmm. How can I support you? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the mind and body are, I think, really this. They're the same thing, and when they seem like they're not, that's the problem. That like kind of schism between mind and body, where the mind is, uh, you know, uh, directing the body to do certain things, but it it doesn't um, it doesn't work out well that way, unfortunately. Yeah, the, it's really um, a servant. They say the mind is a servant of the spirit, not uh, not its master. The, um, the order in which um, the befriending your body teaches is um, body, emotions, mind, that we, we tune into the voice of the body and regulate our emotions and then let the mind weigh in. And it's with that example of pain, when I used to go with the mind first and then I'm like, oh, there's pain this morning that spiral would spiral me. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, pain means, am I not going to make it to work? Am I not going to make enough money? Am Mm -hmm. I I going to lose my car? I mean, like, you know, the mind will spiral the crap out of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas now that I've learned to be in the body, I'm like, it's intense sensation. Let Mm -hmm. me take it slow this morning. Let me stretch out. Um, You know, it's it's a whole different Mm -hmm. um, road to go down. Mm-hmm. It's like there's there's the what the what is the sensation and then there's the interpretation and the the suffering is usually in the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Like it should be some other way. How could this happen again? Yes. Yeah. The stress uh, is all now. This and that will happen, and you know that whole train. It would just be better if those kind of thoughts didn't exist. If you can learn to live more in your body, you. They, they exist, but you don't live by them. They don't, like, affect. They don't control you. Yeah. You don't live. They don't drive the bus. <laughs> yeah. And that's what the, the containment practices, too, of, like, this is how it is. It's like this. It's not like, I have to make it better. I have to get rid of it. It's mm-hmm. just very simply, this is how it is now. Mm-hmm. I think mindfulness is a really key uh, part of that because without that... Uh, the identification with those thoughts just occurs automatically. 
the painful thought comes up and it's like, that's me. Yes. Rather yeah. You have than, to have awareness of that. It's yeah. But with the mindfulness, it comes up and it's not like it doesn't come up. It just, you can like watch it and be like, oh, okay, cool. I do this funny uh, exercise with clients pretty early on in our sessions about naming yourself talk. And I like make it humorous <laughs> so that, um, and we'll start naming, because really the mind's got, you know, there's the, the shameful mind, the comparative mind, the critical mind, the fearful mind. So whatever, like, is there predominant, we'll name it. So usually we'll make it funny and, like, use alliteration and be, like, you know, jerky Janice or <laughs> mm-hmm. sometimes more vulgar than that, but I won't say that on audio here. Um, so, like, I'm, am I, I have healthy Heather and then unhealthy Heather. So when when we're when you, just to bring awareness of it, you're like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm this critical of myself. So I do. I have early on my clients name their self talk, and then um, journal on how much she's driving the bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the people are like blown away, and just the awareness of it reduces it. It does, yeah. It helps yeah. a lot to to recognize that it's the thoughts aren't you; they're just thoughts. They're not you at all. In fact, that exercise is so cool, too, because how could they possibly be you? You are the one identifying the judgmental voice. Mm-hmm. You know, you are in charge here. You you can, with awareness, start shift rewiring the way you speak to yourself. Mm-hmm. I kind of view it as there's two inner communication systems to work on, the nervous system and, and the, the self-talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, a particularly destructive one. The self-talk could be very bad. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean the whole and and you know it's it's really not hard for it's hard to shift, but it's not hard for people to understand. Where I'm like, you know, is, you know, is, are you why are you saying that to yourself? And they'll it find it's it's not their story. Somebody else said this to them, mm-hmm. and then they have. It's just stuck in their subconscious, and now they view themselves like that. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of loops, and the more it's resisted, kind of the more it's perpetuated in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's almost like you just have to drop the whole thing. Yeah, that's why I like the tool, the Name Yourself Talk, because it adds a little levity, and then I feel like Mm -hmm. the laughing at it brings you to the parasympathetic without trying. Yeah, and when so I get then, like a certain negative thought pattern, I'm like, oh, this again? Like, uh, come on. Yeah, sometimes I, yeah, you could call it your mom's name. <laughs> if my mom, not you, mom. Someone if, who if I might you. send this to my mom. I'm not talking about you, mom. Um, although she's probably used to it by now. One time I had to write this 50-page paper of self-analysis. And I asked my mom if she wanted to read it. She was like, uh, no. <laughs> she did. I was like, dad's the one that's destroyed in it he's the cause of all the problems but i was like you did all right you'll be okay reading it but we joke about that she's you know she's like i know the mom's the cause of all the problems humor is a very powerful force it really is i don't think we should take ourselves too seriously and this this spiral of of personal growth and healing is, is spans our entire life i feel we should have a sense of humor about it yeah i mean it's not you know we're all in it 
Yeah, life is a comedic tragedy. So <laughs> really, I like to lean in more is. on the comedic part I because the too. tragedy part of it sometimes is a little bit too much. I fully lean into. <laughs> although I have to say, I I personally have to be cautious of not pushing away difficult emotions. I yeah. sense that I do that sometimes, where I'll push away difficult emotion with comedy. I have to work. I'm still in the spiral of that mm-hmm. personal growth. But yeah, we can't take ourselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. We're all out here floundering around That's, <laughs> trying to figure it yeah, out. Yeah, on a, a spinning rock, hurtling <laughs> yes, through space yes, in a vast, almost infinite It's getting very hot these days. Billions of stars. And then if you have menopause and you're internally hot and yeah. it's externally hot, it's really out of control. Yeah. <laughs> then we have all sorts of problems. Yes, we do. You know, like when I zoom out like that, it, it puts things back in perspective. Like life fundamentally has like some pretty ridiculous elements to it, so... It's good, good to, you know, name them for, for what they are and, yes, and yeah. laugh a little bit and not take it all too seriously because there's, there's definitely a time for taking things seriously and a time for living, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So I, um, yeah, I'm not a good match for clients that don't like humor because I, uh, I can't help it. I need some levity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Well, Heather. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the Herbal Hour podcast. Thank you for having me. It was nice connecting with you in this way. Absolutely. How can people find your work? Uh, my website is Heather Heals with Food, and I'm on Instagram at, at Heather's Healing Kitchen. And I work virtually and also um, at the Patchogue Wellness Center in Patchogue, New York. Great. And I'll have those all linked in the, okay, in the cool. show notes and everything like that so people can uh, connect with you. Okay, um, great. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a great conversation. I learned a lot. So thank you again. Okay. Thank you.